Lord, I just ask that you would please bless it, that you would speak by your Holy Spirit, get me out of the way. All things come from you, and so does your word. And so I pray that your spirit would speak. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, 2 Samuel chapter 5. Tuck that question in the back of your head for now. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and spoke. If you recall from last week, there was the don't die challenge of which Saul died and Asahel died and Abner died and everybody died except for David and Ishbosheth, the king of the northern part of Israel. He died as well. If you remember, it was split up this way. Please work. Oh, great. So you had the northern and the southern tribes like we're going to have later. You had Ishbosheth to the north and you had David and Judah to the south just for a couple years. But everybody ends up dying. And then we get to chapter five and Israel comes to David at Hebron, which is the little blue dot at the bottom and spoke saying three things. Indeed, one, we are your bones and your flesh. Also in time past, when Saul was king over us, number two, you were the one who led Israel out and brought them in. And number three, the Lord said to you, you shall shepherd my people Israel and be ruler over Israel. We see them give three reasons why David should be king. And there are actually three excellent qualities to look for in a leader, even today, a leader within the church or a leader in life. First of which is that they are the same people of the same as believers. It would be, I think, generally a mistake, a massive one to put unbelievers in charge of a church. You can see that actually in practice a lot of times. We'll leave that there. Second, they said, you were the one who led Israel out. They are a people who have ability. We've seen that you have the ability and potential to lead because you have already done it and experience. Generally a good idea that people have ability. But most importantly, third, the Lord said to you shall shepherd my people Israel. The third most important quality, or actually we'll see that's flipped according to the Lord, but this third quality is that a leader is called to that. And that is, an, in the book of Deuteronomy chapter 17, if you remember it from last week, you don't have to turn there, but I have the verse. I don't remember if I put it up here. I forgot to. God is talking about kings and he says this to Israel. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. God's first one on the list is their third one on the list, which is that they are called by God. One does wonder what pain they could have avoided if they had gone with their first, like God's first one, God has called, because they spent years under Ishbosheth at war with David and his people, and many of their sons died in battle unnecessarily because the people of Israel to the north didn't submit to the call of God that they already knew. For God, that's the first one, a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. And then God says, one from among your brethren, you shall set as king over you. It's interesting that God actually makes no mention of their ability to lead. And often God's call does come before God's training or even God's installment into a position can then lead to training later, if that makes sense. Like that's the classic where God guides, he provides, or where God says to go, he trains. That's way less cool. 
And so in the church and us in our own lives, of course, that which should reign over our decisions primarily is very simply the call of God. But it is also good for us to consider that people are the same. They are our brothers, <clears throat> Christians, especially within the church. But there's more to that. And then third, that we see either that they have ability or if it doesn't seem that they do, the call of God can override that. I had <laughs> somebody come to me when I was first going to be the youth pastor years ago, and they said, I don't think it makes sense for you to be the youth pastor. I don't think that you'll do well at it. <clears throat> and I'll be totally honest with you. I kind of was in the same boat. <laughs> and I remember early as a youth pastor, the most like obvious thing was that I was just a person. Like there isn't a pastor like thing that you just, it's just like a role that God gives you that you pick up and try to walk in the power of the spirit. And I remember like very much feeling exactly that, that I didn't also feel like I necessarily knew what I was doing, but the Lord was faithful to train. I praise the Lord. Think it worked out. Okay. We see Jesus, the leader of our people trying to do that thing. I totally said I was going to do it last week and I didn't, but I'm trying to work this into my teaching where I always go back to Jesus. Jesus, was he the same people of the same people? Yes, but more so Jesus is the son of man and he unites all people. There is neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, all are one in Christ Jesus as far as salvation is concerned. Does Jesus have ability? <laughs> Jesus reigns at the right hand of the Father, and he will rule with a rod of iron. Come, Lord Jesus. And is Jesus called? <laughs> Jesus called everything into being. Or made it. God said it. You know, Jesus, we could talk about the theology of that, but you get it. Verse 3, Therefore all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. <clears throat> Before it said that Abner made Ishbosheth king, now we see that David is king before the Lord as they anoint him. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and in Jerusalem, he reigned 33 years over all Israel and Judah. Two quick points. First of all, this was 15 years after the anointing of Samuel when David was a child, roughly. So there were 15 years of preparation for this task. God calls, but his timing is just as important as his call. <clears throat> the right action in the right time before the Lord. Second, I just want to point this out. As far as verse five, you notice that it obviously goes over a lot of history. If you're ever, uh, something that can help you when you're confused reading the Bible is the way that it, it structures itself chronologically isn't exactly like we would. A lot of times the Bible will um, like record an event and then talk about it again in detail. So you see this, people talk about this all the time with Genesis chapter one and two, and they're like, there's two creation accounts. It's not, it just does it, it like gives the creation account and then it goes over it again, giving specific details about one of the parts. The Bible does this all the time. And so you see in this section, it goes over just very obviously, it goes over all of David's reign and then goes back. Verse six, <clears throat> then the king and his men, went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites. 
the inhabitants of the land, who spoke to David, saying, You shall not come in here, but the blind and the lame will repel you, thinking, It is not possible for David to come here. Nonetheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. By the way, same pattern. It records the, it like gives an overview who did it, and then it goes back and explains how he did it. We would structure this the other way around, where we describe the event and then we usually give the final tagline. But just when you're reading, that's the thing that it does a lot. David said on that day, whoever climbs up by way of the water shaft and defeats the Jebusites, the lame and blind hated by David's soul, he shall be chief and captain. Therefore, they say the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David dwelt in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the millow and inward. Very small thing before I jump into Jerusalem as a whole. In the book of Chronicles, it describes that this was actually a moment for Joab where he ascended up into the upper ranks of like the general. See, I kept that simpler last week, but Joab is the person who led the charge up the water shaft and like broke into Jerusalem and won that city for David. And that's why he ended up being his general. He was already high up, but he got higher from that. But what's happening here? Here's what I want to do. Why Jerusalem? A couple reasons, and I had a couple good reasons, but I just, again, I'm not going to go too much into this, but I think this is going to like really, I think this will be useful to you. Uh, First of all, the obvious things is that Jerusalem being unconquered up till this point was neutral ground. It's important for David in this season of turmoil between the upper and the lower halves of Israel to do everything he can to unite them. And so he moves his capital to a place that is neutral. It didn't belong to north or south. And so he rules from a place that's like equivalent. It's also more central. On this map, I'll show you. But Jerusalem is about where the green is by the sea of the Dead Sea on the bottom, very top of the Dead Sea, a little bit over takes like not very long to drive from one. It's one of those things when you drive around Israel, it's really weird that like everything is closer than you thought it was. It's like pretty short to drive around. Jerusalem's original location was not chosen because of its proximity to major roads. In fact, it is fairly far from international highways of the coastal plain and the Transjordan. There are two close roads. One was a half mile to the west and one more than five miles to the north. This meant foreign invaders traveling through the land would often bypass Jerusalem entirely, go around it. So it makes sense from a tactical perspective. But there's one more thing. The most desirable feature of the site was the natural defense provided by the hills and valleys to the south and east, combined with a difficult approach from the west. Jerusalem sat at a rugged hill at the height of hill country and was surrounded by the natural defense of the valleys. This is where I realized this is actually a really cool thing. So if you have your map, why Jerusalem? It's because of you. Get ready for this. You can, some people can already hear the pun that's coming. <clears throat> Let's see if this works. Here, here's hoping. Okay, we're good. This is like a two-step process here. It's going to be laggy, but <clears throat> here's what I want you to do. On your sheet of paper, which probably looks roughly like this. Let's make this a big pen. I want you to draw a U. But it's like a wavy you. Why Jerusalem? Because of you. (laughs) 
And then on the left U, it's going to kind of shoot off to the west. We're, this is a regular north-south map, so north is at the top. And the right part of the U is going to shoot upwards. Also, that little, that little thing over here that I did is not on purpose. There we go. And then we're going to pretend it's a Q, and there's a little river that goes away from here. With me so far? Okay. These are the valleys with the little rivers, that's the wavy blue lines, that surround the city of Jerusalem. Where is Jerusalem? Don't draw it yet, because there's one other really important thing. Well, <clears throat> there is a couple of mountains, and if you would draw this mountain, there's one right here. It is the tallest one in this entire U. And you'll never guess what it's called. Zion? This is Mount Zion. You probably can't see that text, sorry. <clears throat> there is one other relatively small mountain. It's up and to the right over here. This is not perfectly, as you would tell. <laughs> this one, anybody know? Mariah. This is called Mount Moriah. Mm -hmm. And then I'll give you one, one more important one, which is that if you go east across the river from Mount Moriah, there's another mountain right here. Jerusalem is going to be surrounded by them, but these are the only ones that we're going to name for now. Anybody know what the mountain east of Moriah is? Nope. Good try. It is to the south a little bit. It is the Mount of Olives. These have different names uh, in different places, but for recognition's sake, that's what we're going to call it. There's a couple other mountains that I'll draw for you here. You can put them in uh, just so you can see that Jerusalem is surrounded, but we're not going to name them for now. And there is one other very important feature. And I want you to see this before you draw it because it's, it is that there is another valley that goes up through the middle right side with a little river like that. You should draw that in. <clears throat> Modern day, this valley does not exist pretty much. It's almost been completely filled in. But back in David's day, it would have been a significant valley. It's called the Central Valley or they, the Greeks renamed or somebody renamed it something hard to pronounce. And I forgot that one. Trifomus or something. And so from a strategic perspective, <clears throat> you would think, where do you want to be? Well, you want to be defended and you don't draw this part yet, but I'm just going to draw in, let's see, yellow here. Don't draw this yellow part. <clears throat> it's easiest to defend yourself if you only have to defend on one side. Does that make sense? The other sides are difficult because of the mountains and the valleys and such. Except that it's hard to build that much of a wall. That's a big wall. <clears throat> the highest place is Mount Zion, so you would think you would want to put it there. But there's one other feature, which is that there is in this valley on the right side, I'll make this a brighter blue for you here. There is something called the Spring of Gion or Gihon. And from that little blue, can you see it? that little blue dot water comes up from under the ground. So the smartest place to put a city, which is where the Jebusites had their city, and you can draw this one, is right here. And then they would usually put like a little 
wall around that actual spring part. It didn't actually cross the whole river, but I just kind of screwed up the drawing. Can you see that? This is the city of the Jebusites, or as it came to be known, the city of David. And Mount Zion, beautiful as it was adjacent, and there's obviously people that built things all around it, but this small strip over here is where David had his city. I'll explain kind of why this is more relevant. You don't have to draw this, but uh, Solomon would eventually in, like, extend the wall. Oh, that was terrible. I'll just use the orange one. Solomon would eventually extend the wall to include Mount Moriah for reasons we'll discuss in a moment. And then later it would go bigger and then there's an even bigger one and then everything gets destroyed. You don't have to draw this. <clears throat> and then Nehemiah would rebuild this version. That's what he would have built, this teardrop shape that included Moriah and the city of David. And the modern city of Jerusalem, the old city, does not actually include the city of David at all. The modern city looks roughly like this. <clears throat> so just for fun, I'll show you some of this. Everybody got it? A couple parts of this. Oh, yeah, I have the backup slides here just in case I needed them. But, oh, shoot. Do, do, do. Yes, so I should be able to do this. Yes, rock on. This was my backup. Just for fun, here is what this roughly would have looked like. You can see on Mount Zion, kind of in the back there, and then the city of David there. And if you subtract Mount Zion from the middle of the U, there's Mount Moriah, which is the high one. And then there's the city of David as it comes down. And you can see again from this that like there's this valley that's between Mount Zion and the city of David. And that's the central valley. And that's why that would have been a good spot. That's why they didn't just build on top of Mount Zion because you need water. And there's also like a little thing that they've got over here. <clears throat> you can see the wall extends slightly out on that one side. That's the springs to keep those. Modern day, this valley is completely filled in. And so, do, do, do you want me to clear that background real quick? Here we go. This is the modern city of David. You can't really see it, but it's mostly filled in over there on that side. And if I was to look at this on Google Earth, looking north, the same perspective that we just had, this is what the terrain kind of exaggerated. This is the modern height and elevation of this area. And if I put our little drawing on top of it, <laughs> that's what it looks like. Does this make sense? So this is like when you start to put all these things together, so much stuff makes way more sense. Like, for instance, Mount Moriah, the reason like this is such a significant mountain at the time, like we're going to see David, if I get to it, bring the Ark of the Covenant. But he brings it all the way into the city of David. He doesn't put it on Mount Moriah yet. That's for later. But it's eventually going to go there, and that's where the modern Temple Mount is on Mount Moriah, because it is thought that rock there is the rock on which Abraham sacrificed or was going to sacrifice Isaac, right, in obedience to the Lord. And that entire thing was a type for Christ who was to come and who was sacrificed by his father in order to save sins on our behalf, right? Right there by the Temple Mount. And the interesting thing is, as I showed you, from before, I don't have a, I don't think I have a Mount of Olives on this one. <clears throat> but if you see Mount Moriah behind the city of David, that's where the Passover lambs would have been sacrificed and the blood would have gone down into that valley and flowed towards us, meaning that as Jesus walked across to the Mount of Olives and back over, he would have been walking over the blood of the sacrifices. Does this make sense? 
And so as you start to put this stuff together, that valley is called the Valley of Kidron or the Dark Valley or something, depending on where you're reading it. And so like all this stuff starts to make sense, right? And then later when we see the Philistines come and they line up in a certain place and you read all these stories about the people from Asia, not Asia, goodness, I can't believe I just lost that. Nebuchadnezzar and like everybody else, Nebuchadnezzar and everybody. Thank you, them. And it talks about where they line up and everything else. You're like, oh, I get it. They line up on that side. But I'll give you the small one. This is why it's David goes up the water shaft because the city of the Jebusites would have been very hard to take, except that they had this little part off to the side where they went down to get water. And so they were able to go in through that spring and go up and therefore conquer the city. Does this make sense? I just think it's cool. Some people really hate it. I respect that, but I love it. I also have a million other graphics that are pretty cool. There's this one that has the thing. <clears throat> and I'll show you this one again because I had to pay $6 for it because I had to take the watermark <laughs> off of it. So I'm getting my money out of it. You know, there's that one. Isn't that cool? Wow, look at that. Cool. Yeah. Is that worth $6? I don't know. Probably not, but we'll count it. <laughs> I emailed the guy. I was like, listen, I really like this, but also like you should have at least given me like an HD resolution image for $6. We'll see if I get a reply. <laughs> I was really nice about it, I swear, but it's awesome. So there you have Jerusalem. Why Jerusalem? That's why Jerusalem. Make sense? There you go. And then the Central Valley. If you go there nowadays, it just, like, all these valleys got really filled in. It, even the height of things now is, like, much higher. When you go to Jerusalem and you walk around, I'm still so disappointed that trip got canceled. I understand why, but <clears throat> you can descend to a lower place and see stones that would have been on the streets at the time of Jesus. But they're, like, several feet down, by which I mean, like, 10 or 15 feet down, because you build on top of the previous. David took the stronghold of Zion that is the city of David. Verse 9 of chapter 5. We're done with the map. You can save it in your Bible. I'll give anybody any of these if they want them. <clears throat> can I give the $6 one morally? If you get paid? <clears throat> I don't know. We can fight about it. Verse 9. Then David dwelt in the stronghold. This would have been, the city of David would have been relatively small. You can walk across the current old city, which is much bigger in less than 10 minutes. So it's basically just almost a castle keep style of where the stronghold refers to actually within the walls. And David went on and became great. And the Lord God of armies was with him. We'll see as we go through, especially in verse 12, that David is very careful to credit where he knows everything comes from. He did not call himself to this. God called him to this. He did not give himself the ability, nor did he install himself in that position. And he is very careful at all times to remember and to record it thus. Then Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees, and carpenters, and masons, and they built David a house. He has good relations with the nations around him. Look at verse 12. So David knew that one, the Lord had established him as king over Israel. That number two, he, God, had exalted his, God's kingdom. Number three, for the sake of his, God's people, Israel. Notice this attitude that David is very intentional to keep, and so should we be. Anytime we are in a position of leadership or something is given to us, it is always by stewardship. 
and it is always by the grace of God. The Lord had established him, not David himself, and he kept that in mind, and that God had done it to exalt God's kingdom. Nothing that we have belongs to us. It's given to us, and we must treat it with that reverence and respect and hands-offness. For the sake of his people, Israel, God's goal was the glorification of God, and so it, David always kept that in mind, both in leadership within the church and then leadership within our family or leadership within work or just honestly self-control and leadership over our own body as God has given it to us. God is the one who has established us. God is the one who wants to exalt his kingdom. It's his kingdom for his purposes, for the sake of his people, Israel. It is important that we always recognize that the leadership of God is, oh, we'll, we'll get to that later, actually. It's figured I said that part. <clears throat> but verse 13, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he had come from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Now those who are the names of those who are born to him in Jerusalem, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, obviously relevant later, Ebhar, Eleshua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Elidia, and Eliphalet. Kind of like that name. It's musical. <clears throat> Guzik says this, It's often true that the seeds to future trouble are sown in times of great success or prosperity. In some ways, David handled trials better than success. Just as we need the Lord and are careful to seek him out, and to hear his answers in the times where things are difficult, we must strive to be, because we are, the same way and in the same place when it's not as obvious that we need him. He should not have taken these wives. Now when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, all the Philistines went up to search for David, and David heard of it and went down to the stronghold. <clears throat> Often, after times of great success and blessing come trials. Think of Peter. And right after he says, surely you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Immediately Satan whispers in his ear, not so Lord, you shall not go and die. Remember that whole thing. The Philistines went and deployed themselves in the valley of Rephaim. I won't exhaust you with all the maps, but this is a valley to the east of Jerusalem. And it would be difficult to attack anyone deployed there because it's a tight valley. <clears throat> and so if they get there first, it's really hard to knock them out. So David inquired of the Lord. Remember again, that entire lesson from Levi, where he talked about the inquiring, right? And how David did not inquire of the Lord. He just operated by his fear. And so did Saul and inquiring instead of a medium. David is continuously now inquiring of the Lord every step. And he says, shall I go up against the Philistines? He isn't relying on his previous success in any way. He continues to ask the Lord, will you deliver them into my hand? The credit is the Lord's. And the Lord said to David, go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into your hand. Excuse me. So David went, instant obedience, to Baal Perazim. And David defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like breakthrough of water. Therefore, he called that, the name of that place master of breakthroughs. And verse 21, they left the Philistines, their idols there. And David and his men carried them away. This we learn in the book of First Chronicles. If you're ever wondering, by the way, the Old Testament, the book of 
like first and second Samuel obviously tell this history. The book of first and second Chronicles are like the same thing, but more. And somebody thought, you know, what would be better than cool stories, lists of names. <laughs> so if you're like, that sounds awesome, then read first Chronicles first. And then go back and read the Samuels because the Chronicles are much more detailed with the names, which is good in its own way. <clears throat> but in that book, it says that they took them away and burned them. They burned the idols of the Philistines. What's interesting is that we're in 2 Samuel chapter 5. I accidentally deleted one of the eyes when I was searching and I typed 1 Samuel chapter 5. And you know what I realized is that in 1 Samuel chapter 5, the Philistines take the Ark of Israel. Isn't that interesting? <clears throat> and they take the Ark of Israel, they put it in their temples and the gods of the Philistines literally fall and break before the gods of heaven and earth. And in chapter six, the ark is returned to Israel. And you're never going to guess what happens in second Samuel chapter six. It's kind of poetic. The ark comes back to the center of Israel, but it's not the same. Their gods do not fall or the God of Israel does not fall before them. These images, the idols of the Philistines are left because they are useless and they are burned by David and his men. Then the Philistines went up once again and deployed themselves, and therefore David inquired of the Lord. Doesn't make a mistake and say, I've seen this. I know what to do here. I got this. He doesn't operate in his prior knowledge to the degree where he doesn't seek the Lord. He has the exact same enemy in the exact same place, and he does not use the exact same tactic that he used in warfare. He uses the same prayerfulness. He inquired of the Lord. And he said, you shall not go up. This was important. It's not the same this time. But instead, circle around behind them and come upon them in the front of the mulberry trees. And it shall be when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the mulberry trees, you shall advance quickly. For then the Lord will go out before you to strike the camp of the Philistines. And David did so as the Lord commanded him. And he drove back the Philistines from Geba as far as Gezer. And nobody wants to be a Gezer. That was a bad one. Just came to my head right then. Sorry. <laughs> David is faithful to continually put himself before the Lord. We should be careful as people to continually put ourselves before the Lord. Lord, keep us lest we become in a position where we think I've got this. I've seen this before. I don't need the help or the advice of the Lord in this. <clears throat> it was a different scenario because it was a different time. And that attitude of prayerfulness is what was maintained from David and should have been. All right, chapter six. You guys ready? And then we'll be done with this. Chapter six. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, everybody together, 30,000. And he arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bale or Baale. I'm always pronouncing it wrong. Who knows? To bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name, the Lord of hosts who dwells between the cherubim. I love that whole description. David's heart is that Jerusalem would be the center of Israel. And David knows that it's not just about where the king sits, but it's about where the king sits. And so he says, I'm going to take this tabernacle, the ark of God, and I want to bring the very presence of God as close and put it in the center of Israel because that's what it actually is. God is the one who rules over Israel. He's at the center and I want him to literally be at the center because I need to seek him and I know they all do. 
And so verse three, they set the ark of God on a new cart They make a whole new cart and they set it out and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab where it was, which was on the hill. Then Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab drove the new cart. You might know this family because they have 26 children. There's Ahio and Bahio and Sihio and Dihio. And you might be familiar with the guy who flew or swam across the ocean and formed Ohio. <clears throat> I mailed it up. Sorry. I've been thinking about that one for a week. Super dumb. It's excited to see all you grown. They brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God and Ahio went before the ark. A celebration, verse 5, David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, of harps, of string instruments, tambourines, sistrums, and on cymbals. Crazy like no church service we've ever had, which is good because I don't like tambourines. <laughs> I'm just kidding. This would have been incredible to see. But when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and he took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, or irreverence. Your Bible might translate that. And he died there by the ark of God. I remember as a kid reading through this, or hearing it for the first time, and just feeling like this make no sense. Like it's unfair, Right? Like they're trying to do a good thing for God. Like all this stuff makes, you know, they're, they've got this celebration and they're honoring the Lord. They want to bring him into the center of everything. This guy's just trying to drive the cart. He's the son of the guy who's owned like, or not owned it, but had the tent in which it sat for this long amount of time. All these things seem to line up and then God just strikes him because of one minor mistake. That misunderstanding is shared, obviously, by Uzzah because he reaches out. And also by David, verse 8, David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place outbreak, outbreak against Uzzah to this day. But the fact that is what crosses our mind is actually the exact problem. Because it is a huge deal. Because God is so holy, right? And we are so not. A couple of things. First of all, this was not the way that they were supposed to move the ark. In Numbers chapter 4, God had the Levites, they were to be the ones who held it, and they were three families, and God gave each of the main three families of Levi, because he had three kids, duties in carrying. If you remember, when God, or when, you ever seen Prince of Egypt? We were, I was just talking about this with my wife. She watched Prince of Egypt again. She's like, at the very end, remember this? Anybody ever watched this movie for the first time? And he has the Ten Commandments. And like he comes down with the Ten Commandments and the music is rising. And you're like, oh my gosh, he's about to walk into the calf. And then the credits just roll. And you're like, but I want it to keep going. He come, Moses comes down with the tablets and comes into an Israel that is worshiping a false God. And he says, anyone who is on God's side, come to me. And Levi is the one who comes to him and they go throughout the camp and they purify it and then go from there. And God says, because of that, Levi, you are blessed in that you are like the doorposts in the house of God. You take care of the things of God. You will have an inheritance within the land and you will teach the people because you are on the side of God. Right. 
that was intentional because God had something that he wanted to express about himself to the people of Israel by how he set things up. It's called typology. The way it was supposed to work was that some of the family, specifically the priests who were in there of the family of Aaron, were to cover everything. They took down things, but then they covered the ark and they covered the different implements. And it gives like a whole description of which one, if you're really excited about that, <clears throat> you can look it up. And then the, the people who were supposed to carry it were not allowed to even look as it was being covered. And God specifically said, if they come in and watch, they will die. And then he, they had rings on the side of the Ark of the Covenant and they would put the poles through and then it was to be carried by the men of Levi, by the people. <clears throat> and if they touched it, they would die. God said that specifically. There's something intentional about God. It's something he's communicating in that he is holy and set apart and we are like not worthy or even able to come into his presence. Remember that the Ark of the Covenant represented, it says, who dwells between the cherubim, the Ark of the Covenant represented the seat of the presence of God on earth. <clears throat> That's why it was in the center, as Jordan's been talking about on Sundays, at the very center in the Holy of Holies, separated way out. And when Jesus split that veil, it represented our ability to come into the very presence of God. As the writer of Hebrews in chapter 10 talks about, when you pray, you come into the very throne room to the holy of holies, right? Before the intimate near presence of God. But Israel was not to, except for these exceptions, to look upon it or to touch it, lest they die. Because God is holy. God is so holy. And God will represent himself on the earth that way. And when I don't recognize the reverence with which God should be like God's word should be like understood and obeyed, it leads to this. If you recall, I was going to go there, but for the sake of time, I won't. In Deuteronomy, when it gave the rules to kings, one of the rules to kings was that they were to write the entire law out by hand again and keep it with them that they would be conscious to always obey the word of the Lord. <clears throat> we have the word of God written. It's good that we keep it and we go through it that we may be careful to obey the word of the Lord because he is holy and these things matter. And so <clears throat> uh, Guzik says this, getting back to this whole story here, we are often tempted to judge a worship experience by how it makes us feel. But when we realize that worship is about pleasing God, we are driven to his word so that we can know how he wants to be worshiped. Worship isn't at all about what pleases us. It's about what pleases God. And what David was missing here was how God had set forth to be worshiped. And there's a series of mistakes made by David leading up to this point where there's not that inquiring of the Lord about how this thing is to be done. And so it sets this up. But also within the heart of Uzzah, again, Guzik's really good. <clears throat> Uzzah erred in thinking that it didn't matter who carried the ark. It is important that we desire to do God's will, God's way. Uzzah erred in thinking it didn't matter how the ark was carried. Sometimes, oh, I'm doing a good thing before the Lord. As long as it gets done, that's a good thing. But no, it is important, as I repeat, that God's will is done God's way. Uzzah erred in thinking he knew all about the ark because it was in his father's house for so long. Sometimes familiarity can, as we say, breed irreverence, 
right? And it, that was a mistake on the part of Uzzah. He should have continued to fear the Lord. Uzzah erred in thinking that God could not take care of the ark himself. Sometimes we try to help God out, and it's not a justification for sin. Uzzah erred in thinking that the ground of the threshing floor was less holy than his own hand. <clears throat> Obey God and let things fall where they may. David was afraid of the Lord that day and said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Now you're asking the right question. So David would not move the ark with him into the city of David, but he took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. In 2 Chronicles chapter 26, sorry, no, 1 Chronicles chapter 15, it gives a more detailed version of this specific part in which it says that David recognized, like read the law and recognized what mistake he had made. Now it was told King David saying, the Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. God desires to bless when things are done in rightness. So David went and he brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And he specifically says in first Chronicles 15, he gives that exact outline. He says, this is how this is going to happen. You guys are going to carry this. It's going to happen right according to the law. We, the Lord struck us last time because we did not seek him or look to his word on how a thing was to be done. And I think that like the most obvious application perhaps is like our own lives and where we should fear the Lord in the sense of consequences matter. Sometimes it's like the indirect consequences of where God is correct. He understands people. And when we don't obey him, it tends to work out badly for us because he is right about what's good, right? But at other times, the hand of the Lord in judgment can also come. Had another point there and totally lost it, but it's okay. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom with gladness. So it was when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep, and he danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. This celebration is bigger than the previous one. David knows that the issue wasn't that they celebrated. The issue wasn't the joy of their heart. It was how they went about it. And he danced before the Lord. The idea here isn't that, as we'll see later, it's not that he's not wearing clothes because she talks about, his wife talks about him being indecent. It's this specific thing where it says he's wearing a linen ephod, meaning he is not wearing his royal garments. He looks like one of the people as he dances before the Lord and does all this stuff. <clears throat> and in his heart, as we'll see, he is a worshiper. And that is the important point. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. They celebrate because God is in the center of Israel where he belongs as they should. As the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michal or Michael or however, I think it's fun to try and pronounce it a little bit like how they would, but looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord and she despised him in her heart. Mark that. You'll see why later. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. Then David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. You almost see this as a celebration where David himself has been coronated or yeah, that's right, right? Coronated, cor coroned. 
as king coronated. But he wants to make sure that Israel understands and has this whole other celebratory triumphant parade where, in a sense, if you would, David is careful before the people to coronate the true king of Israel before them. And so he becomes not a king, but just a worshiper before the Lord. And in joy and celebration, all of them dance and worship God for his goodness and for the fact that God is where he belongs in the heart of Israel, physically represented there in the middle. And he blesses the people, not in the name of the king, not as David, the victor, but in the name of the Lord. It's very important. David is, again, setting up as the center of Israel, not just Jerusalem, but God himself. God is king. And David knows this, but he's communicating it. Then he distributed among all the people, the whole multitude, women and men to everyone, a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. Part of the blessing that God had given to them, all of them got it the same, probably including David himself. There's no difference from rich to poor. There's no difference from anything else, status or, or health or anything else. All of Israel is blessed because God is in his place. So all the people departed, everyone to his own house, and David returned to bless his household. How awesome would it be to have David bless your household in the name of the Lord? But Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, sarcastically, how glorious was the king of Israel today, uncovering himself today in the eyes of the maids of his servants as one of the base fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. From a couple words, we see where her heart is at, how glorious, she's being sarcastic, but she's concerned with David's glory and with her own house's glory. You weren't glorious, you weren't kingly today. You uncovered yourself, you took away those robes as one of the normal people without shame. Her concern is so small, she's thinking about the fact that David isn't glorified, right? And she's next to him, and so she isn't glorified. How dare you put, like, do you realize how stupid you look? You're the king. And David, as he says, verse 21, it was before the Lord I danced, who chose me instead of your father and all his house, can't resist that, to appoint me ruler over the people of the Lord over Israel. I'm celebrating God who has put me here, actually. So you should be thankful to him, as I am. Therefore, I will play music before the Lord, and I will be even more undignified than this, and will be humble in my own sight. But as for the maidservants of whom you have spoken by them, I will be held in honor. She completely misunderstands what's happening. She is concerned with the glory of her own family and with the glory of David. She's concerned with status and she sees herself as above the people as one of the base fellows. But David understands one, all of them are the same before the Lord. Two, I will, whatever I, I will worship the Lord and I don't care if you think it's stupid. I don't think if you care, I don't, I don't care if you think I look stupid. I'll do things decently and in order, as we've seen before. But at the end of the day, it, it's worship. And third, 
<clears throat> David, again, to cap and tie all of this up, is humble in his own sight. He understands what's really happening in Israel and who the real king of Israel is and who really deserves the glory, and it's not him. Recall that the world's version of leadership is David's concern is the glory of God. David is concerned that God be worshipped, and he does not care if this makes him look glorious. <clears throat> A small point. May we be people who have uh, put our reputation in the hands of the Lord and just obey and worship anyway. And third, remember Christ, who did not consider it something to be held, to be considered equal with God, but came, made himself a man, and died for us. I should memorize that verse. It would be a lot. Tracy could probably give it to you right away, but read it. Philippians chapter 2. Jesus does this. He obeys his father and comes from the very highest to the lowliness of men, even to death on the cross. Therefore, verse 23, Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no children to the day of her death. She received shame in that she was barren in that culture, which was a sign of the curse of the Lord at that time. And for her, it was. Possibly it's because David never slept with her again. We don't know that information isn't given to us, but regardless, it's true. And so overall, we see David as a king putting the center of Israel in the place Jerusalem, yes, which one is strategically important, but two is also spiritually important and is the rock right next to the rock on which Abraham was sacrificed and then Jesus would also later be sacrificed. I didn't actually get into that whole part, but it's really cool. And by the way, if you want to, I didn't talk about this. I shouldn't interrupt my own wrap up. But if you're interested in seeing the intention of God in the Old Testament, there's this really cool series by, I'm really sorry for mentioning him again, Mike Winger. And if you want to at horizonindy.org slash tabernacle, that's what I could think of. I put four of them in a row for you to read or to watch. And they talk about like, what the Old Testament, what God's intention in building the tabernacle and setting things up the way he did, how it points to Jesus. It starts with one that talks about the limitations of typology, right? Like we don't come up with new theology out of all this, but then when it goes into it, it's some of my favorite messages I've ever heard just about seeing how the whole Bible is one message all the way from beginning to end. And you can see the purpose of God across the entire thing. The New Testament, and the Old Testament are not separate. The law and the prophets and everything else are not some separate concept, but God has Jesus in mind. Like, obviously, you know this intellectually, but to see it, as he pulls it out of the tabernacle and the way things are arranged and you see how it points to Christ later and how the Jews should have obviously seen Jesus because God had made it so obvious in the tabernacle, but the Pharisees didn't want to hear. Horizon Indy.org slash tabernacle. But David set as the center of Israel, God. And so we should set at the center of our own lives, God. Pretty simple, isn't it? Let's pray one more song since we got it. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your goodness. We indeed should fear you because you are righteous, you are holy, you are God and we are not. <laughs> may we understand the depths of our own sin and may we understand the glory that you have and so recognize your holiness. <clears throat> but we thank you that we have been reached out to. <laughs> You reached out your hand and touched us. 
um, saved us by your blood. And now we can reach out our hand anytime we want and uh, meet with you at the throne, at the ark. And we don't die, but you welcome us in by the blood of your son. Thank you for all of this. Be the center of our lives. In Jesus' name.